0: Dad bod All right, well, welcome to this special live episode of Dabod History. I'm Jake. We got Eric. Hope you guys are doing really well. And uh, Eric, how you doing, man?
1: I'm doing good. I was just checking the levels on uh, on how that's broadcasting. But I'm check. doing great. I'm doing yeah, good. Check the levels. Checking the levels. Decibels and stuff.
0: Yep. Uh, yeah, so, I'm doing fine. So... In some kind of random news, before we get to the question, so Eric asked this question that we want to talk about, and I want to get to that. And the question is, what are things that we, in our opinions, have been wrong about history? And I want to get to that question, but uh, before that, there's a couple, of, like, I guess, historical news items that kind of popped up on my feed this week that I thought were kind of Interesting and worth discussing. First of all, this one was actually today. It was an article on CNN, which is the best place to go for history news. But I don't know if you saw, there's this um, Monet painting in Stockholm in a museum there. And as environmental activists have a habit of doing, they go into these museums, throw paint, like red paint on the painting, and then like glue their hands to it as some sign of environmental awareness and it's such a confusing <laughs> tactic to me like i just don't get it like i don't is understand it, what the benefit is it the, of it.
1: the gluing themselves to it or the, the throwing the paint on it
0: i think the paint is probably the bigger issue but then they glue themselves to it like you know some underpaid security guard has to peel them off of it and go arrest them i don't and you know and, and these paintings are all behind glass so there's there's a chant i mean there's probably no damage that was done they're gonna go check and make sure so it's even more futile to me because they're throwing paint on glass to represent defacing a painting to raise awareness for the climate crisis and environmentalism and i just don't get it like if you go chain yourself in front of a logging camp yeah i, I get that i can get behind that kind of protest because you're Actually, trying to protest something regarding the environment, but going into a museum and defacing art it just doesn't make sense to me.
1: Yeah, I yeah. I, I mean, problem, so do I know. I'm not a fan of destruction of property. Um, me neither. And I mean, unless you're, you know, in a fully customized, personalized bulldozer, but that's a whole other thing. Yeah. what um, <laughs> oh, was that a bulldozer? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, when you're going after, like... Never mind. I shouldn't say that. You know I, what I, I mean. Just,
0: I just don't you know understand the effects. So if there's any environmentalists watching, tell me what the reasoning is behind this. Is it just so that people that disagree with you can get angry and talk about it? Like, I, well, don't,
1: I think it gets some attention. It does sure. get quite a bit of attention, but uh, I don't know that it's necessarily effective at changing anyone's viewpoint Yeah, but I'm not like... Climate. Oh,
0: well, they're trying to destroy priceless works of art. I'm going to go donate to Greenpeace now. Like that's never. That's never yeah. been the cause effect of that. It just makes I've me irritated at environmentalists.
1: Never been moved ah. to work harder for the climate crisis. Uh, because somebody defaced property. Yeah, I
0: wasn't going to vote for the Green New Deal. But now that they've destroyed some art, I'm all about it. Like it just yeah. doesn't yeah. make sense. Doesn't make sense. Make it make sense. So that's one.
1: Well, I think that gets into something like the power of art, right? I think mm-hmm. the power of art, of creation, of making something. you know, you have all these artists who've created all of these these things throughout history. Um, those things in and of themselves are more inspiring mm-hmm. to me to take action for something. Right. Mm-hmm. So, um it, seeing someone deface something has a negative effect. I'm, I'm more likely to act upon something if I see some beautiful piece of architecture. Yeah. So well, creating no is more powerful than destroying. No, I agree. And we're
0: getting way out of our depth on this one because neither of us have a league of artistic experience or knowledge. But when you talk about like Van Gogh, and Monet, a lot of their paintings, especially the the impressionism, they're like of scenes of nature or, you know, there's this one impression, I don't know if it's Monet or Van Gogh, but it's like they're at a, a scene of like a pond and there's a tree and there's like just kind of people enjoying nature. It's like, why would you want to hurt that? Like, why would you want to harm that in a crusade to help the earth? And I apologize if I got the names wrong or the artist I'm talking about wrong, but art has an ability, like you said, to move people to action. And defacing it doesn't... It's Like you said, it's counterintuitive. But anyway, um, another little article that popped up was from phys.org, and like physics.org, and it talks about proof that part of the Roman Empire smelled of patchouli. And patchouli <laughs> was an... It's a plant from like India, but it was used um, in like funerary urns and like burials. And so they found these urns um, in Spain um, and the Univers- University of Cordova researched them and they're able to find that they used patchouli kind of as they like get an, an incense or a, a, a fragrance. Um, and there's this one urn, I guess, I don't know how they determined, I believe it was of a woman. And hers had a, quite a bit of patchouli, and so they thought, well, at least in this part of the Roman Empire, they were big fans of the scent of patchouli. I just thought that was interesting. Just
1: I don't know what that smells that, like.
0: I, I don't know what anything smells like, so it's all new and to me. Patchouli, but, you said that's from India? Uh, I believe that's what the article said. It, it's huh. from the Indian subcontinent, which, if that's true, I'll see if I can find it while we're chatting. Um, it's a bushy perennial herb, and then... Anyway, if it is from India, that just again talks about the interconnectedness of the ancient world, right? Cause oftentimes when we talk about Rome and the Roman Empire, we think of it as largely isolated from much of East Asia and I guess Southern Asia, if you count India. But if it is patchouli and if that is from India, then, um, I'll check it in a minute here. But that just shows that, like, no, these these civilizations, these cultures, these empires were communicating with each other. They were trading with one another, um, or at least they had intermi-
1: intermediaries that were trading well, with Well, the Romans from. were constantly at war with uh, Parthians. the Parthians, right? So yeah, the <clears throat> there, there, there is like a clear border. They know that they are, you know, rivals for power in that area. The same with the Romans and the Carthaginians. The thing, uh, but the thing that we focus on so frequently it is, is found in many. It is found in India, um, all throughout
0: Southeast Asia, but it is found in India. So that
1: is is extra. it. So much of Roman uh, stories that we know and we that we learn have to do with the Carthaginian wars, right? Or but also. Right, but also with Roman interactions with all of the, uh, we'll just call them barbarians, that bordered Rome to the north. And, and these people, the, the issue here is not that they were barbaric or didn't have culture, it's that they didn't have a large organized empire like the Carthaginians, like the Parthians, like all of these other groups that the mm-hmm. Romans Audience. they were they were more disjointed and so that creates it gives us this impression that Rome was very much uh, an outlier but they, they weren't like Rome was one Empire in a string of empires throughout history and when mm-hmm. the Roman Empire fell in the West you had another Empire that that remained in the east and when that fell there was another Empire ready to take over uh, you know in the east these yeah, the idea that it's isolated in any way is, is an odd way. Yeah,
0: well, I it just, it's, it's yeah, you said it's so interesting, but like with this, because patchouli plant is found in India, which is thousands and thousands of miles away, and this urn with patchouli fragrance or incense was found in Spain, which is the western edge of the Roman Empire. It's just, it's just kind of fascinating, and it's really cool to see yeah. that. That interconnectedness. Because the more you see that, the more interesting the story becomes. You know, like when Alexander's empire fell, there was Asian Greek kingdoms that were just kind of remained in like Central Asia for hundreds of years, and they interacted with the Chinese, and China actually went to war with them and stole their horses. And like there's just all these other stories, and there's still
1: there's were this those, were those kingdoms were, I, were they descended. I mean, obviously from his empire, but was there <clears throat> their leaders, were their leaders the, the local people who had been put were, in place? No, I believe there were parts of his
0: army that settled there when they stopped expanding. And there's Indians uh, in the subcontinent that they've traced the ancestry to, there's Greek ancestry, there's just these these small communities in India And they have Greek ancestry in them, or Hellenic or Macedon ancestry in them. And the Hmm. genetics show that. And so they're just, they've got these random, like, Greek communities. I mean, obviously, they're culturally not just Greek anymore, but, like, these just random, like, Greek communities still within India today. And they're not very large. But it's really, really interesting. Like, when Alexander's empire fell, like, for thousands of years still, his influence is felt in that part of the world. And and vice versa, you know, the, the Silk Road and the spice trade that came from the East totally changed Europe and, and Africa and uh, Northwest Asia. So just fascinating, the interconnectedness between all these supposed disparate empires. We're like, well, they never fought a war, so I guess they didn't know each other. Like, no, they knew each other. They just couldn't travel that far to fight a war.
1: Yeah. Uh, so uh, you mentioned India. Mm-hmm. And and that brings up a thought. Um, did you go see uh, the new Spider-Man? No. Yeah. Oh, OK. And so the, it's, wow. awesome.
0: it's better than the first one. Mm.
1: That's oh. hard. That's hard to say. Um. I really enjoyed it.
0: Word on the street.
1: I I enjoyed it. It was a tad too long. It was like two and a half hours. And then it ends, and it says uh, to be continued. So it's like, well, hold up a second, because <laughs> we're we're two and a half we're two and a half hours into this thing, and uh, I'm just like, man, this thing has got to wrap up soon. Um. Anyways, the reason I bring it up. Is one of the characters, one of the spider people, is a uh, Spider-Man India. Oh, and really? He's he's an amazing character. I love it because that's at one official, point, that's his official name is Spider-Man India. I believe so. Yeah, <laughs> and uh,
0: <laughs> I mean that Spider Noir. Why not have Spider India? Yeah,
1: I, I, and the reason I think that's true is because I saw a Funko Pop that was Spider-Man India. That's Anyways, awesome. it was it was cool. Like his hair comes out of the top of his mask because it has to. But there's a scene where uh, there, he's talking about who he is and he says, uh, you want to drink some chai? And uh, Miles says, oh, chai tea. I love chai tea. He says, no, it's not chai tea. Chai means tea. That's like saying tea tea. And which <laughs> is something I've had students of mine say. And now I just call it chai because I'm sophisticated. Nice. I love it. But yeah, don't say chai tea. Or non bread, because it's like saying bread bread. is bread. Yeah, I don't know. That makes sense. I guess, I guess. So, go see it. It was good. I feel like it was a little long for my kids, my boys. <laughs> um, yeah. I'll see but, I, it. But, uh, yeah. I love the first one, so I'm looking forward to this one. the The Transformers film wasn't great bumble see the thing is this one is the like the sequel till to bumblebee bumblebee was a good movie i enjoyed that one was really good
0: it was it was a solid movie i i thought it was gonna be bad because the last five transformers have been bad and then bumblebee came out of nowhere it was really good
1: it was good um so yeah this one was a little disappointing obviously they're trying to build this stuff up and i have no idea what the beast wars are the maximals but anyways i i watched it so
0: well that's good man yeah i'll
1: check it out um
0: so let's get into your question and you asked this what are things that we've been wrong about in our assumptions on history or we had an opinion when we were younger and we changed that opinion and when you asked me this question and after we talked about it for a bit, I went hung up and then I asked my wife I go, what have I been wrong about in history? And she had a,
1: <laughs> Before you said you know, history a, she was, get the, yeah get the scroll,
0: pulled you know. out the list I got, a, I got a couple from her that that we can go over to but yeah, I think it's a good question because I think it's good to one the more we learn, the more we, we realize we didn't know it, but other, it's just good to, you know, as we get older and as we change our perspective on events and people and places, changes too. It should. it Those, those shouldn't be static. Um, but I'll start off with a light one, and this is one from my wife. When we first met and you know, we were first kind of seeing each other, we were out at a bar with some friends, and I was, started bloviating about how Adonis... Was this Greek god and he was gorgeous, and I was clearly comparing myself to that. And, and we
1: always said, You're a Greek Adonis. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It was always yeah. the term we used. Yeah. So, but I said he was a Greek god, and she was, He was not a god. He was a mortal. And so she very specifically pointed out how wrong I was, and this is why I shouldn't drink and talk history because I very often get embarrassed by my wife as a result. But that's that was one thing that I was just flat out wrong on as far as my knowledge of history. And I I was right. Just there's you know there's an outside influence affecting my my recall on that one. So there you go. That's one. Yeah. And then the other one you mentioned when we brought up the topic was the Civil War, man.
1: What was it all yeah. about, Eric? Well, you know, looking back on how I've seen history and understood it, you know, when we were when we're young, when we first learned about something like the Civil War, it's so common for us to say the Civil War uh, was about slavery. And then Mm -hmm. as you get older and as I got older, I got to the point that I said and even taught in some respects the Civil War was not about slavery. The Civil War was a, um, it was a war of the state's rights, yeah. right? It was a war about these other big issues and it wasn't mm-hmm. just slavery. And, and now the mistake there is coming back to that and saying, uh, we have to separate a few things. The war correctly was not about slavery. The war was about preserving the union. Yeah, at least the first two and a half years of it. Right. Yep. The secession was about slavery. And we know Absolutely. it's about slavery because the states wrote it into their con- their new constitutions when they formed a confederacy mm-hmm. that this had specifically to do with slavery. You don't name an institution like slavery unless that's one of the reasons you're, you're breaking away. Um, and we yeah, have a yeah, comment yeah. here. It wasn't like – we have a comment here, that the right to have slaves. Yeah, it is about exactly. the state's rights. So when you say it's exactly. about state's rights, you're not wrong, but you're kind of obfuscating you're missing, what right you're talking yeah, about. you
0: that sentence, right? Like, oh, it's about state's yeah. rights. State's rights to do what? And, well, to own slaves and to perpetuate the institution of slavery. You know, and, and like you said in their secession documents, it wasn't like once or twice. Yeah, like, I it think was... It's like dozens and dozens of times. I think South Carolina's had it like the word slavery in it eighty-seven times or something. Some ridiculous number. Like in every single state that seceded, I'm pretty sure every single secession document they had talked about slavery.
1: Right. So yeah, and so you're you're we're able to say the war wasn't about slavery. That is correct when it started the war was about preserving the Union. It'll yeah, become Yeah, I mean, if about, the
0: South seceded for anything, Lincoln was gonna marshal an army. Yeah, if they and,
1: seceded because uh, they were gonna prevent them from using Freon in their cars, <laughs> the war wouldn't have been about Freon, it would have been about preserving the Union. Well, so, yeah, or, or like, about taxes, right? Because that's why
0: the colonies right. declared it. So let's say the South seceded because they didn't like the tariffs that the, the north was imposing and was hurting their economy well lincoln still would have marched marshaled an army and still would have declared war on the south to preserve the union
1: yeah yeah so but I, the war is about something other than what secession was about mm-hmm. and secession is very clearly about slavery it happens as a as a response to lincoln being elected because lincoln is a uh is a threat to the institution of slavery, even though
0: he he wasn't an abolitionist, but he was anti-slavery.
1: He was, uh, we'd call it the free soil movement. Yeah. Right. Didn't want it to spread. So I was wrong for much of my life in saying, oh, it's just about states rights Mm -hmm. because the whole issue was grounded in slavery and had been grounded in slavery for decades yeah. I mean, even Thomas Jefferson said, uh, "This is going to be an issue that is going to come up later, but I'm going to leave it to the next generation to solve it."
0: Yeah, a lot of the early and, founders were they were hoping was, that it would tie on the vine.
1: so He to was speak. worried, actually, that it would come to something like the Civil War, and I guess he was right. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, as I unpack something like slavery in the Civil War. We go from these simple statements of the war wasn't about slavery or was about slavery to it's so much more complicated and nuanced uh, to the point that is every Southerner um, a friend to the institution of slavery? Uh, you know, maybe not intentionally. Is every Northerner um you know, seeking to abolish slavery is every northerner a hero? No, no not necessarily. Not. So we get into these. You know, we have to generalize in many places, but we have to be able then to to look more closely at those generalizations and start to to see the I detail mean, there was, that's actually there, there, was,
0: there. there. was plenty of business interests and political interests in the North that were totally fine with slavery continuing continuing in the South. Um, in addition there was absolutely abolitionists in the south and when the southern states seceded there was communities within the south that rebelled within the south
1: west right. virginia
0: yeah west virginia they what is it, thirty four counties broke away from from virginia because they were they disagreed on the institution of slavery and then there was like smaller rebellions within the south that Popped up because they did not agree with the South seceding, and some of them didn't agree with the institution of slavery, and they were abolitionists. So, have you, you seen be-
1: uh, Free State of Jones?
0: No, you've told me about it. You've said it's really good. I, I need to watch that one. That's yeah, what Chris it, right? Yeah. Uh,
1: Was it? Yeah, he does such a good job in that film. I sometimes can't tell if it's him or Christian Bale. Um, <sighs> yeah, it's very good. Yeah.
0: So, anyway. Yeah, that is one where I I think maybe it was at college or shortly thereafter where I was on that, well, it's a state's rights issue, but the more I read, I'm like, yeah, that's what they say, but the only right that they were really focused on was the right of owning slaves. And so it was a weird process going through that because I was in the same boat as you and, and then over time I said, well, no, it's not. It's not about states' rights, or at least not in the way that it's being painted. Um,
1: so, anyway. But again, yeah. I, you know, it, it's also out, separating out the war from secession. They're two related, but different things. I mean,
0: you could say there wouldn't have been a war without a secession, which is right. also true. But Lincoln's intent, and he was very vocal about that, was preserving the
1: Union at yeah. all and, costs. So the oh, oversimplification of it is the war is about yeah. slavery. Yeah. And that's the simplest explanation or description we have. Mm-hmm. If you have to say one sentence, describe it. Oh.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a good way to put it. Um, so another one that I thought of was, maybe it's a little controversial, America won World War One. When I first learned about World War One my presumption was that had America not entered the war, the allies would have lost. That was <laughs> World my war one.
1: Well, the first war. one.
0: Oh no. Yeah. The first great war. And because once they entered, then about a year later, Germany lost. Right. So I'm like, well, obviously America is the reason that happened. And, I'm not going to say the Americans didn't contribute to the victory in World War One. They absolutely did. And their manufacturing alone and their industry was a big part of that, too. But. I think Germany. At that point was going to lose anyway. Mm-hmm. It was just a matter of when, because by that point they were starving Um They lost millions and millions of men. They've gone through a really hard winter. I think it was called the turn-up winter. Um, And France and England, you know, they held. And they were getting better and better and better. And Germany was not. The the advantages Germany had at the outset of that war, they no longer had by the end of that war. Um, France and Germany were able to develop tank warfare better. Their navy was better. Or France and England, yeah, France and England, were their navy was far superior to Germany's. They basically kept the German navy bottled up. And the Russians, though they lost, um, they distracted Germany long enough that Germany just couldn't win on all fronts. So, I, I, while I don't think America would have turned was the turning point of the war,
1: I think they brought
0: it to a much quicker end.
1: Oh, um, sure. I mean, the the military. You know, our military joining the Allied forces in the West. Clearly, had an impact. Uh, the Russians were out of the war basically the same time that we entered, right? Close. Yeah. When, when the when the Russians sued for peace, Woodrow Wilson realized it was now or never because uh, with with the Eastern Front going away, they're going to need to help bolster the French and the British. Mm-hmm. So it helps it along. Uh, this reminds me of another question. Uh, actually, I saw uh, I think it was uh, Stakui, um, mm-hmm. if I'm pronouncing that right, had a video I saw today where he talked about World War II. Could it have been won without the U.S.? And it was. He said, "It's you know, it's interesting because it it breaks down to a, a couple things. Without U.S. troops, he said, yes, could have been won. Would have been a lot bloodier. Would have taken a lot longer." But it could have been won without U.S. troops, without U.S. money, okay. without that manufacturing, Lend-Lease, lend-lease right? Uh, no way, no way on God's good green earth do the Allies come out on top of... Well, that's,
0: that's an underrated fact, is that um, the Lend-Lease Act kept Britain in the fight and hmm. kept the Soviet Union in the fight. And people yeah. don't realize that, like everyone talks all the Great Red Army, and yeah... They were massive and very powerful by the end of that Great war. The Great Red Army was backed
1: by our Greens.
0: But they were using a lot of American material mm-hmm. and a lot of American manufacturing to stay in the fight long enough to be able to to build up and push Germany back. And so I, I absolutely agree that I think World War II is a different story um, because Germany had France conquered they didn't have to worry about England. I mean, they wanted to conquer them, but um, if all they had to do is focus on Russia, and Russia doesn't have American support, just you know, military material and funds, then yeah, Germany's winning. I, I think Germany wins that battle.
1: Yeah, they're able to to take Stalingrad, Leningrad, Moscow, and and at that mm. point, it's over. And if you I, don't.
0: And that doesn't even begin to address the Pacific theater. I mean, if, you know, if Japan does not face, you know, the United States, obviously combined with the British, but, um, I don't know how that shakes out. There's a, there was a good chance Australia was going to get invaded. I mean, that, that was how close of a thing the Pacific theater was.
1: Yeah. So here's a question that we had, um. It says, uh, "Did did Japan deserve the second nuke?"
0: Oh, that's always a well, question, question. Is
1: did they deserve the first one? Um, well, I mean, here. Well, we've talked about this before. Um, I, I have this book, like ready to go. Bright. It's so bright. It um, Choices under fire: the moral dimensions of World War II, and um, you know, it it talks about. You know, first of all, I don't, I, one I issue don't... that's pretty prevalent in – that's going to be part of a lot of this is this uh, – racism is a very touchy subject. Mm-hmm. But the 1930s and 40s, racism is a completely different monster. So you can look at the political cartoons of the early 1900s and how the United States – or Americans viewed other people around the world, mm, yeah, as just like not I, quite I, I just, fully human. I remember watching several years
0: ago. It was on, I think it was on Netflix. They had like the old Disney cartoons, like a Mickey Mouse and Donald. There was one where Donald was like fighting in World War II against some Japanese, and the Japanese characters. I mean, it's just a stereotypical character. They you know give them the buck teeth, the glasses, they make their eyes slant, like all of the stereotypical racist things you could think of, they had in that cartoon. Yeah. It was just, it was just there and that was for kids.
1: Like, that's so, But the argument made in this book is that if if in August of 1945, Japan and Germany were both, um, if we were at the same time place with both of those countries and we have only one bomb to drop. Do we drop it on Hiroshima or do we drop it on uh, Dresden? Well, not Dresden. You know, what's a small German town, right? Mm -hmm. 150,000 people. Which which one do we choose? And this book kind of gets into this many Americans are descended from Germans. So can we really do that? I mean, we had no problem firebombing the Germans for months on end.
0: The question on did Japan deserve the bomb, I would say,
1: well, did Japan
0: deserve the other 60 cities that were firebombed in the months prior? Mm -hmm. Because that's what had happened. And the same thing with Germany. Like, we firebombed Dresden, and the, the casualty and death toll was just absolutely horrific. So did they deserve that? Because I think we look at nuclear as somehow just that much worse. And at least then, yeah, it was bad. It killed a lot of people, but when Japan first reported on it, like the Japanese government, they're like, well, yeah, there was a bombing of Hiroshima, many, many lost, but like that was it. Like it didn't create shockwaves because every major city in the country had been bombed by that point. So to them, it was just another city has been wiped off the map, not Oh my gosh! It's this whole new thing that changes everything. Like, like, well, there goes another
1: one. Yeah, it took several days for people to really understand what had happened mm-hmm. um, with that yeah, with that new weapon. Bomb. That was the big difference. But the, the question is, you know, did Japan? So, so, the Japanese government, the Japanese people, and it gets into the question of does this does this bring the war to a quicker close? Does it alleviate later suffering or not? And that's, we, we don't know for certain I think, what kind of suffering would have existed after that. Yeah, we've, um, we've
0: talked about this. And I think before in, a, in an episode we did, and I think the question I came to was, Japan has been sending out feelers to have a negotiated peace to end. So they could keep some of the, Holdings that they had conquered. Yeah. Some of that stuff. They were looking for a negotiated peace. The Allies.
1: Not not unconditional.
0: Not, yeah. The Allies wanted an unconditional surrender. So the bomb may have brought Japan to the idea of unconditional surrender because before then, and in fact, I think even the day that they did surrender, there was almost a coup in the government, like the military wants there were still folks within the military that wanted to fight on. And the emperor had to like stop them and surrender. Like he, so that it, it was not a. so the bomb in Nagasaki and Hiroshima may have brought them to unconditional surrender. So in that sense, it, yeah, it may have ended the war sooner. They, they might've continued to fight longer, but so if that's your definition of, if it was worth it, then I guess that that's one way to look at it. I'm guessing that's probably how the allies and Truman looked at it. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're saying that it's not worth it. Then, you know, there was plans for an invasion, um, which would have been a lot of American troops that have died. Um, in addition to a lot of Japanese troops and civilians that also would have died. Um, So it it depends on how you look at it. And I don't, the older I get, the less I feel certain about absolutes. (laughs) And this is definitely one of them. Right. I guess in my, if I was the one making that decision, I might've dropped the bomb. Like, (sighs) and I I don't know how I feel about that, but that's.
1: Yeah. I mean, we make hard choices sometimes. I'd say that, um, If you're looking at, should we have dropped these bombs? Was it a good thing to drop the bomb? I don't know. You know, people often say, well, hey, we're just trying to do it to, um, you know, scare off the Soviets. And I think that deserves time. That deserves a good discussion because if you say us dropping the bomb on population demonstrates not only our capability, but also our willingness to do what's necessary here whether it's necessary or not Mm -hmm. and I think ending the war in that way puts the Soviets on notice I I absolutely think that was a factor the the Soviet place in the world is not on top well and there was a very real threat that the third army
0: and the red army were going to meet Like Patton was champing at the bit for it Yeah. And that would have been hundreds of thousands, if not millions of more people dying, you know, and and if you look at it from that perspective, you can see the rationale that was going through Truman's head and the allies head when they're like, do we drop this and end it as soon as possible? Um, And if that was the rationale, I get it. But I also get, you know, other people have made compelling arguments. Well, they didn't have to drop it on a population center. They could have just dropped it somewhere where it was not populated, and that would have scared the Japanese. And it may have. I don't know. Um, and it still would have shot across the bow to, to Stalin, saying, hey, why don't you take a break? Um, so those are all valid points, and I, I don't necessarily disagree with them. But I think hey. in that moment, I see why Truman and the Allies made the decision they did.
1: So there's Whether another-
0: I like it or not, I, I, I can see it.
1: There's a good question or comment here. Um, This person says, I think of bomb dropped in major U.S. The conversation changes. And I'm thinking about World War II. Um, There was outside of Pearl Harbor. There was only one. Attack and it was like one bomb that was dropped near Portland or in Seattle Um, or something.
0: Yeah, and the Japanese had a very small, like, reconnaissance fleet, force that, like, went to the Aleutian Islands and
1: certainly Americans on the home front had a completely different experience of World War II than people in Germany or Britain or France or Japan or Russia. Yeah, the conversation changes if, if a bomb gets dropped on the U.S. Well, you know, Germany and,
0: or France, France, England and Russia all lived through intense bombing campaigns. Yeah. I mean, the Blitz. So, again, when we say, well, I think we put the bomb on this scale as if it was something that was just horrific that was not being done during the war. I'm like, no, the entire war, that stuff was being done. Like the, the allies were firebombing city centers. The Germans and the Axis powers were doing the exact same thing. Um, and I don't, I don't know if you can look at the scale of that destruction and then look at the scale of the destruction in Hiroshima and say, well, that's somehow so much worse. Um, yeah. A city was wiped off the map with one bomb, but the allies have been wiping cities off the map for years at that point. So I, I that comparison, I think, needs to be looked at in that light. But I absolutely agree. If it had happened to an American city of, you know, equal size, yeah, the, 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 the metrics change real fast on that. And the response changes real fast on that. We lose a city in a night, even if it's not one of our biggest cities. You, you absolutely believe that Washington is going to, do some serious thinking on how to respond to that. Yeah, but if you, but if it's one city, that's the thing. If at this point, that's because this is where Japan was. They'd already lost sixty of their major cities before the bomb in Hiroshima. So if you take America's sixty most populous cities and they had been firebombed for months and months and months and were reduced to rubble, what's one more city? Like what? What is? I don't know, uh, Mesa, Arizona, in comparison to New York, Chicago, L.A., Dallas, um, St. Louis, Washington, D.C. What What's one more city compared to every major city in the country yeah. being destroyed? Because that's what Japan had been living with at that point. So when you look at it that way, I, I, don't, know, I don't know if that answers it, but it is a good way to change your perspective on it.
1: Sorry, someone just set off fireworks outside, so I guess it's starting. It's June fifteenth, sixteenth, people.
0: All right, we're in the Independence Day season. Yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah.
0: So that was my other question. Did America win World War One? And now we spent 20 minutes talking about World War II, which always happens.
1: Always. Always. <laughs> it's nothing. Wrong with. Uh no. I think um, No, I I don't. Oh, USA versus Mexico. Historically speaking.
0: Well, hold on. I can get to that. But I got one more. Another one where my opinion has changed on this person is Julius Caesar. When I first learned about him, you know, as a kid and then grown up, I thought he was the greatest conqueror ever and he was the greatest general ever and he was this incredible you know, man on a hill sort of thing. And the more I've learned about him, I do think he was a brilliant general. I don't think he was Rome's best. He might not even have been top five. I think there's other generals that were far better than Caesar. Um, But I do think he was a very, very good general. I do think he was a good conqueror. But I also think because he got to write his own biography, he was able to embellish his story quite a bit. And I think that's... That's where my opinion on Caesar has shifted. I used to think he was, I used to think he was like Alexander, like or Genghis Khan, like you know, he's just implacable. And I think he was very smart. He's a shrewd politician, but I think he was also really good at writing his own story. So that's my shift on on Caesar. See, so he was able to.
1: You know, that's interesting because I think I, I have a similar experience here with. Thomas Jefferson. Um, mm. Not that I, I don't know that I ever really loved Thomas Jefferson. In fact, there's a lot of times that I, especially more recently where I look back and I think you're just, you're, you're something of a, a problem in American history. Uh, it, it doesn't, yeah. it, you, you, you're creating a, a problem. You created a lot of great stuff. You've helped us build our, our, some of the most important ideas, not just in American history, but going forward from 1776. But you also act uh, in contradiction to the things you write about.
0: His own writings contradict his own writings. Yeah, and and that's to be expected
1: in the course of of a life. But I've been reading, or I finished this book, American Sphinx by Joseph J. Ellis. Uh, It's about the character of Thomas Jefferson. And I think I have to kind of peel back my criticism of him overall to kind of a a criticism of some of his actions. Because while he contradicted himself in his writing and his actions, I, I, I truly think he believed freedom belonged to everybody. He just wasn't sure how to make that happen. You know what I'm saying? It's almost as if he, yeah, he I, don't, he I don't stuck think he, on some things.
0: I don't think he was
1: hypocritical
0: in the sense that he didn't actually believe what he wrote. I do believe he believed what he wrote. But he didn't have the forthrightness or ability to rise above...
1: The practicality.
0: The the practices of his times and put those into practice. And that's where it's really sad because Washington, who also owned enslaved people, and although he did it upon his death, he did emancipate his enslaved persons. Um, And so you can see, you know, that change happened and then there's an action there. With with Jefferson, you see, like in the notes, I think it's the notes on the states of Virginia. He's writing all this stuff about like the the like the climate of Virginia and like his farming practices and all this really fascinating stuff. And then he's like, "What do you do about these slaves?" He's like, "I don't know. They might not be able to learn like we can, and they might not be able to have this culture because who knows?" And he's like, "You know," and and he's doing it almost like it's an experiment, like he like he's He's a researcher, but mm-hmm. on the other hand, on his plantation or on his, on his property, he's got this nail um, factory, a nailery, and he's got boys at the age of 10 making thousands upon thousands of nails a day. And if they don't hit their quotas, the foreman gets out the whip and it's just so fascinating. And it's like, but it's also like sad and it's really hard to get a grip on him. Like you said, like he's just, Oh yeah. He's slippery. Like like when people it's again, painting things in one or the other color, like, you know, was he a slave holder? Yeah, he was, but he also on this side was like, you know, he pushed for Liberty for all. And he pushed for education for all. And he pushed for all these other things that are really, really good. And, and you know, but In his practice over here, he did this thing that was really terrible. And in this writing, he advocated for this. And on this writing, he contradicted. He's just, he's a conundrum and I just can't get to grips with him. But I used, I think I used to really, really like him. Now I've gone to the other side where I'm like, I don't, I have a lot of things I have problems with about Thomas Jefferson. But if you read, if you just read his stuff, it's like, I mean, he's just all over the place, in so many ways. Like,
1: I don't know. Yeah, he was never writing a final draft of every of anything. Yeah, it seemed like he was always drafting the next thing. It's interesting. In seventeen seventy four, in seventeen seventy five, he wrote two documents, and those documents um, were were different um, statements on like resolutions that they were sending to England. And in both of them, he calls out slavery as essentially evil. And in both of them, he, he describes it. Slavery should be done away with. And then in his initial draft of the declaration of independence in 1776, it also includes a line to abolish slavery. And that gets removed. Mm -hmm. So you can see like he, he did take action to remove it as a whole. But if it wasn't the law of the land, he wasn't going to follow it, right? Yeah. And it's it's just a very odd, um, you but know. He,
0: his later writings were more like, what do we do? And then, to be fair, this was Lincoln, too. He's like, what do we do once the slaves are free? Do we send them back to Africa, which is a big movement in the 1800s, was, you know, basically rehome them back in West Africa, Mm-hmm. which is where Liberia came from. Like, that's yeah.
1: what it is. It's uh, it's fascinating that Thomas Jefferson would have that perspective. He'd be looking at these people that he owns saying, I'd like him to be free, but I don't think that they can learn or assimilate to our culture. And if mm-hmm. they can't do those things, it, it's not going to work out. And he's right about that. If people don't learn and they don't kind of assimilate to culture, you're going to have trouble. <laughs> The thing was, he was he was dealing with people who were not being given the opportunity to assimilate into a culture and were not being educated. Exactly. And it's like you, you understand if you're running an experiment, you do see the variables here, right? You do see the difference between these two groups.
0: Yeah, for, that's maybe what it is. For as smart as he was and as intelligent as he was, he had this blind spot, mm-hmm. I think, when it came to – slavery, the institution of slavery, and maybe that blind spot was a result of money because he also wrote it extensively about how profitable it was not to have enslaved people make or work his fields, but to have enslaved people have kids. Mm -hmm. He wrote to Washington about this, like how profitable it was and how he could make 2% a year just on having them have kids and then selling them, basically. And so that's, I think, the, the weirdest, most distressing part is like, you can see he wanted to do the right thing in some respects, but then you also see this huge blind spot. And in other parts, you see this just abject cruelty and how severe he could be with with the enslaved people on his plantation. And so he's a, you know, that's why you don't, that's why you don't worship Men. You don't idolize. We don't we shouldn't idolize the people in our past. Because if you do, you're gonna set yourself up for some real disappointment.
1: And so there's one thing that I really enjoy about the monuments in Washington. When I do look at them, I see them as something of a these sacred structures, not quite temples, but they're temples to something, they're not they're not temples to the men. Lincoln and and Jefferson both have statues inside of them, of the men. I don't think it's there to worship them because they also have something else. They have words on the inside of those monuments. Mm -hmm. And I think it's the ideas that we should uphold. And and the statue is there. It's like this man is the one who provided these ideas for us. Here are the ideas. These things are worth knowing. It's worth knowing that this guy wrote them. Yeah. Yeah. Same thing with Lincoln Memorial has the uh, Gettysburg address and his second inaugural address, mm-hmm. both of which are powerful things to read. Yeah. And to understand that if nothing else, Lincoln a, was a vessel for these ideas that. Well, and Frederick Douglass talked about, the you know, this
0: relationship with Lincoln and,
1: mm-hmm.
0: you know, the problems he had with Lincoln. Like, we can't look at Lincoln as the savior, although I'm, I think he was. Absolutely, the right man for the right time. He he was not perfect by any means, and in some some respects, if were it not for Frederick Douglass, you know, Lincoln would not have become the abolitionist that he became, and the course of the end of the Civil War could have been very, very different. So you can't deify Lincoln either, you know, just because he was the uh, the great emancipator, Um, because. He was not about that at the beginning of the war, as we mentioned earlier. He's anti-slavery. He was was always anti-slavery, but he was by no means an abolitionist,
1: at least at the beginning.
0: Um, Any other questions? Do you want to get into the recap of the Mexico-U.S. game?
1: Yeah, I want to talk about that. That thing was wild. Did you get a chance to watch it? Oh yeah. Oh, I and I, and I, I. I barely knew it was on. I saw that it was going to be happening. I'm like, oh, I should watch that. U.S.-Mexico. It's got to be good. But it was Nations League. It's kind of like it's not that big of a deal.
0: But is it a World Cup qualifier or is it not? No, it's... I don't know anything anymore. I don't know any of these tournaments. So Nations
1: League is... In your conference, CONCACAF, you're broken into three groups. Group A, Group B, Group C and i think for league a league b league c and league a has like the top six teams they play a round of games and they end up in a tournament and somebody wins it and it starts over again next year i don't understand it but anyway Uh, europe started it it's just a way for us not to get more competition across the world which bugs me um so game. I'd say, like, the CONCACAF Gold Cup, which starts in, like, a week and a half, that's a bigger competition to me than Nations League.
0: Well, because that is a World Cup qualifying tournament, right? Because that's the mm-hmm. way we redid it.
1: Oh, maybe. Speak?
0: Well, Remember, like, the winner oh. of the last, the previous two Gold Cups play each other?
1: Uh, oh, that, that was the old uh, Confederations Cup. Oh, maybe that's they it. They did away with that, too. Oh. Um I don't pay attention. To yeah. So, CONCACAF Gold Cup, I think, is a bigger competition in my, my mind I think for it us is. to play Mexico. But that game, whew, that was
0: something. A game to watch. Like, I've watched a fair amount of US Mexico games. And the, the the thing I hate, get so frustrated with America is they just don't score a lot of goals. <laughs> like, they just don't. <laughs> They're always they don't. winning 1 0, maybe 2 1. Like, and to see them, especially with Pulisic, just pour two in before the half and after the half, and then they got that third one for fun towards the end, like, that was fun. Like, it was fun to see the United States not just win a game, but dominate it, and they they dominated it, but those fights were Wild
1: in the second oh half. Gosh, like they were and down nine v nine at the end, like that. That I, I was that, hoping yeah. it would open the yeah. game my up friend, a
0: bit. You sent me where the ref is like breaking it down. He's like, "Here's where I think the mistake happened." Oh, when the nineteen from Mexico headbutted butted Reyes or Reina, Is that what it was? Just clocked. oh,
1: it just yeah, just going for the ball. No Card. I mean, the card they didn't give him a yellow card. It's like
0: like are you surprised and then that just blatant trip they got that guy Oh yeah Kenny got thrown out but like it got nasty yeah so us is down well McKinney and I don't know who the other guys that got carded they won't be playing on Sunday just frustrating but yeah that was a fun game to watch like it's
1: just fun when we're playing loose and and, and, and so like, going into the gold cup here which starts on like the 24th next Saturday. Mm-hmm. Right now there's there's um like preliminary games. There's like four spots, I think, three spots that haven't been determined in the groups. there's are waiting f- on this tournament? Yeah, and so it's all the really tiny countries. Guadalupe, Guyana and Granada, Suriname, Puerto Rico. So they're all waiting to get themselves in, after which the United States will have its fourth or third opponent in its group, which right now its group is Jamaica, which is, you know, that's something. They've given us fits in the past. Trinidad and Tobago, which has also given us fits, including preventing us from going to the World Cup. We might not get out of the group, Eric. I know. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, it could be tough. Group B is Mexico, Haiti, Honduras, and Qatar. Uh, Group C: Costa Rica, Panama, El Salvador, and some other country. Group D: Canada, Guatemala, Cuba, and some other country. So, I, yeah, I, I enjoy the uh, the CONCACAF Gold Cup. Yeah, that was fun to watch. Yeah,
0: it's it's interesting. Also, because news broke during that game that Greg Berhalter, yes, got, came back as the is coming back as the coach. 'Cause his contract ended at the end of twenty twenty two and the United States national team basically said, Yeah, we're gonna see if we can find someone better.
1: Well and also with uh well, there's a whole allegation too. The the the, the Reyna family family making their accusations and of course uh is it Gio, the 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 kid who played, mm-hmm. uh got left off that or he, he didn't get into games during the World Cup. Yeah. So they made their accusations. And it's like, well, that's going to be messy. If you're Reyna and you see right before the game that Berhalter is coming back, are you thinking, oh, I guess I'm not playing the next four years?
0: <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I hope not because he's good. But I guess Pulisic likes Berhalter. So yeah. Maybe, that's, maybe that was part of it is that you want to make your captain happy. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I like Berhalter. I think he's been pretty good. Um, I think he's better than Klinsman was. I don't. I think Klinsman was a lot of hype, not a lot of substance. Mm-hmm. But you know, we didn't have a very good World Cup. I mean, that, that's what it came down to. We just didn't. I mean, we we won a couple gold cups, you know, with Berhalter, which is good. But mm-hmm. you gotta you gotta do better than just making it out of the round robin stage. Yeah. and we just can't seem to crack that anymore.
1: And I don't know yet. I assume that we are automatic qualifiers for the next World Cup, but I don't know if that's that's Where for sure. World Cup twenty twenty six. It's in the United States, do? baby. Oh, good. And Mexico and Canada. I oh yeah, they did that joint bid. Yeah, it's across fun. an entire continent. That's how we roll. So, Any games in Phoenix? No, it was left off. It's a shame. I don't know why they do that. Anyway. Um, so, yeah, right now, uh, I don't think... Oh, yeah, Canada, United States, and Mexico have all qualified for the 2026 World it, Cup. Guys. Look at us. I'm just curious what uh, the qualification for CONCACAF is going to be then, because three countries are in. Um, how many do we get? Uh, six. I think we get six. Six and two-thirds. What? Okay, but although... <laughs> it's because... How does that work? Uh... But I mean, the United States
0: and mexico were are probably going to make it in anyway. And Canada <laughs> yeah. is not terrible, so I, I mean, I know they're automatic qualifiers, but let's be honest—they are Those probably three will make it. it. Yeah, they were. They were going to make it anyway. So the rest of CONCACAF can fight over the last three spots. Hmm. Good. All right. Well, that's all I got, man.
1: Yeah. Right. It was good stuff. Went for an hour. Um, If you're out there on TikTok Live. Yeah. Those of you that
0: were on, thanks for the comments, questions. Uh, We'll try to do this again next weekend, either Friday or Saturday. And uh, hope to see you all there. Thank you guys so much. Have a great day in history.